Well, let's open the word one more time to the epistle of James. If you'll find chapter number one, our text this morning will be verses 14 through 16. This is now the third time that we've taken a look at this very important passage of Scripture that deals with the source of temptation. And so far we've learned, as James makes most emphatic, that God our Father is not the source of our temptations. We read that in verse 13, that He cannot be tempted with evil, and then James very flatly says that He tempts no one. And we see in those words that James speaks so emphatically that the blame for our temptations and sins cannot be passed on to God our Father or to anyone else or anything else for that matter. And turning from that essential point, James in verses 14 and following will take us to a deeper biblical understanding of temptation. And this morning, as we read the word, James is going to show us the true source of temptation. And not only will we discover the source of our temptations, but James will show us the progress or the course that temptation takes. So let's read this together. James 1, beginning in verse 14. James says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And there you have the word of the Lord. And may he bless its hearing and its proclamation. As we begin our look at this very important passage about temptation and sin, there's an obvious point we need to make. And you'll find that point made so clearly in verse 16, in the last verse I read. Notice that James concludes this section by mentioning his brothers. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. And there's a very important point to be made there. Whatever James will say about temptation and about sin, he says to the church. In fact, James, throughout this letter, will talk about his brothers some 15 times in five chapters. James will call out, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers, this is a message for the church. So what he says about temptation and about sin is not first a message to the world. It is first a message to you and me. He is talking to us, and we need to listen. And what he says to us in verse 16, what he says to the brothers is, do not be deceived concerning that which he writes. Do not be deceived. There's a danger here. When we start talking about sin and temptation, there's a great danger of self-deception. This is, to be sure, a very complex issue. Doubtless, you have many questions about sin and temptation. And with the complexity of the subject comes the possibility of deception. And so James wants us to go very carefully here, very slowly here. There is a great temptation to misunderstand. To misunderstand temptation itself. It's been said that the great temptation of the lost man is unbelief, while the great temptation of the Christian is misbelief. And James is concerned about misbelief, about believing the wrong thing about temptation and about sin. And so we need to be precise here. There's a sense of urgency here. You can can read it in James' language. 
Do not be deceived, brothers. These things are very, very important. Now, I think that this warning comes in a timely fashion because there are many false things we could believe about temptation and about sin. And, and I want to mention three of those very quickly this morning. These are not necessarily found in the text, but I think they are found in the Word of God. There are three, perhaps, primary ways that we find ourselves confused about temptation and about sin as Christians. And the first one is the one James has already addressed here. There is the temptation. There is the temptation to fall into the false belief that God is the source of our temptations. And again, in verse 13, James says that simply is not true. We, we can't blame God. And you might recall how we extrapolated from that. We said that James really means here, not only is God not the author of temptation, but that means we can't blame our sins on anything in creation. We can't blame the devil. We can't blame another person. We can't blame the circumstances for to, to blame the circumstances, to blame another person, to blame the devil, really is to violate the principle that James is laying down, that God is not the author of evil. He is not the one who tempts us. And so if I'm blaming something or someone else, in essence, I am blaming God. And so we need to be careful not to fall into that misbelief, that false belief about temptation. Now, to be sure... Satan is called the tempter. You read that right in the Word of God. He does tempt. He, he is the tempter. And indeed, it is true that certain people and places and things can have a profound influence on us. The Word of God says that, that, that bad company corrupts good morals. There's no question that Satan and the demons and other people and experiences profoundly influence us in an evil way. But that is not where the responsibility would be found for our sins. Not even there. And this is the grand point that James is making. I cannot hold anyone or anything else responsible for my sins. And especially, not God our Father. But there's another thing that we might falsely believe about sin and temptation. And that is that sin and temptation are strictly external matters. Many people, in fact, I suppose we could be as bold as to say most people, most people in the world believe that down deep inside, the human heart is good. The human heart is basically good. That seems to be a universal belief. Maybe some of you believe that. That basically we are good. And if we go wrong, then something from the outside has invaded. But the Bible would speak in terms that destroy that false view. We'll see that in just a moment. But we're going to learn here that sin and temptation at the beginning are not external matters. A third false belief is that of thinking that sin is only an action. But we're going to learn here that sin is first a condition before it's an action. In other words, sin is a condition that yields fruit. And the fruit of that condition would be actions that violate God's will, God's 
word. And so now James is going to destroy those false views of sin and temptation right here in verses 14 and 15. So let us find clarity. Let us not be deceived. Here is a message for the church about temptation and sin. And so we go to verse 14, and we begin to understand the real origin of our temptations, the real source of our temptations. And notice the language that James uses. He is pointing us to the heart, my heart and your heart. Notice in verse 14, each person is tempted. And then notice the words, his own lust, his own desires, each person and his own or their own. Do you see what James is doing? The subject on the table for discussion is sin and temptation. And where does James direct our gaze? He takes you to the mirror and he says, look at yourself in the mirror for there you will find the real origin of sin. There you will find where the real problem begins. Each one, each individual believer and each individual person is tempted. They are not above temptation. They are prone to sin. They are not immune to temptation. There, there is no such thing as sinless perfection. The sins that we battle, the temptations that we battle, James would say, find their root solely in the heart. It is not about someone else. It is not about my circumstances. It is not about my Father in heaven. It is about it is about me. It is about you. And what specifically is it about us? And you'll notice the word James uses, desire. That word, desire, that appears in verse 14. This is a, a word in the New Testament that can speak of both good and evil desires. It might be rendered lust in some translations. It can speak of passions or appetites or Cravings, And again, it's not necessarily bad because there are good desires, God-given desires. And that's how we started out. God made us in his image and in his likeness, and he, in love and in mercy, gave us cravings and desires and appetites that he would satisfy righteously and in a wonderful way. Think about your desire for nourishment. God has given us the gift of food and he's given us the gift of hunger. And that desire, that craving, that appetite is satisfied righteously when we, when we take what he has given with gratitude and moderation. And we think about our need for sleep, the gift of sleep, or the need or the desire for intimacy and the gift of human sexuality to be, to be enjoyed within the parameters of God's will. And all those de desires that God made us with, that God created in us, and James is telling us that when the fall happened, back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, something changed about their cravings, their desires. When God first made Adam and Eve, their desires were under the reign of the Lord. Their desires were tools to be used to bring glory to the Creator, and the Creator would satisfy them righteously through the mechanisms, the righteous and good mechanisms that he established. And as long as those desires were used for the glory of God and under the reign of God, they would be holy and blessed indeed. But then something happened in the Garden of Eden. 
our desires became autonomously exercised. We said no to the reign of God. We said no to the explicit and revealed will of God. We used our desires and satisfied our desires in very selfish ways to rebel against the Lord. And since the fall, man's thinking and his feeling and his reasoning and his acting are all done in opposition to the Creator. So our desires, by nature, want to rebel against the Lord. We are born in that condition. Our desires, our desires come to us from the womb already aligned against God. And this is the source that James drives us to. Our desires are corrupted and used to advance self-interest. They are standing in polar opposition to everything that God has ordained and willed. And we speak of this state as original sin. This bent away from God, this, this opposition to God, this radical depravity, this pervasive corruption that, that, that finds evidence all the way to the smallest fraction of our being. Desire turned against God, or as Luther perhaps more accurately would say, desire curved in on itself. No longer serving the Lord and serving the Creator, but serving the creature serving me, serving my interests. This is the heart of rebellion against God, and we're born into this condition. And so James is taking us to a vision of our hearts. This is where the trouble starts, our desires. We get this on good authority because this is the consistent message of the entirety of the Word of God. Think about a couple of places where the human heart is depicted in, in terms that would would set us back a bit on our heels. Think about the prophet Jeremiah, those words in the 17th chapter, the heart of man, the heart of man is deceitful above all things. That's quite a statement. Put your name there, your heart, and the heart of your spouse, and the heart of your children, and the hearts of your grandchildren, and the hearts of your fellow Christians in the hearts of every human being who's ever lived, their hearts are deceitful above all things. Desperately sick, says the prophet. Who can understand it? Our hearts are incomprehensibly sick. And that's the Word of God. Well, you know, some people say, well, I only believe what Jesus said. Well, let's hear what Jesus said. In Matthew 15, the Lord Jesus said, For out of the heart of man come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. That's what Jesus said. And James, the brother of Jesus, the beloved half-brother of Jesus, is taking us to the same source. The problem is the pollution deep within us. The problem is there is a deep well of dominating and alluring influences in me. There is a fatal weakness in me, as one says, that will guarantee that I will always, and you and all humanity will always fall short of the glory of God. We will always use our desires for our purposes 
and not God's. And so you can begin to see now what James is teaching us, that temptation is a matter of what's on the inside first, not what's on the outside. And that's hard to swallow, isn't it? It's a very, very bitter pill to take. But you see, if we could just apply this just for a moment, do you, do you see what James is telling us? Do you see how timely, how relevant, how true this message is, how this message hits us all with equal force? The Bible, and here is an example, the Bible would teach us that no one makes you or makes me angry. Have you ever said that? You make me so angry. Or is it just me? But no one makes you angry. If what James is saying, no one makes you lust. If the word of God is to be believed, no one makes you bitter. No one makes you jealous. No one makes you filled with envy. No one makes you take something that doesn't belong to you. No one makes you speak words that hurt or offend. No one makes you compromise. No one makes you rebel against the Lord. No, we do that all by ourselves. Look at chapter 4 for a moment. You have your Bibles open. Now, we'll get there eventually, but look at chapter 4 and look at the first two verses because here we have something else that James says that should be plugged into this conversation. James asks the relevant question, perhaps the question all pastors are driven to ask at some point, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And notice the answer James gives. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. Do you see that? This is an explanation of everything. Everything. It explains what's going on in your home right now. If you have some kind of a relational discombobulation, to use a very technical theological word, this is why. Because you're lusting and you're not getting your way. You're not having the life you want. And what you want is the life you've always wanted. And someone won't give it to you. And so James says you quarrel and fight, and eventually you murder. That explains every discombobulation in the relationships of nations. It explains every war, every broken word and promise. It explains every sin. I don't have what I want, and so I'm going to get it. I may murder you with my words or I may murder you with my fist. It's about what's in your heart. And so this is a very difficult thing to imagine. We have to look at ourselves. We have to look into the recesses of our own hearts to find where the trouble begins. And there's something else James says. Notice what he says about those desires. Now these desires are powerful. You're talking about power here. In fact, James will say our desires have a, a captivating power, a truly exceptional, perhaps incomprehensible power to 
lure and entice. Notice the direct language of verse 14. Each one is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Temptation is within my desires, which are out from under the reign of God. My desires are enticing me, baiting me, daring me to sin against the Lord. These terms, lured, and I'm reading from the ESV, these terms, lured and enticed, are terms that come from the world of hunting and fishing. I think that's pretty obvious to you hunters and fishermen. The hunter, the fisherman, will lure its prey, lure his prey from their safe retreat. They will entice the prey by bait, and soon enough the prey will be trapped in a hook or a net or be shot dead on sight. We can all imagine a fish, perhaps in the Tennessee River or the Gunnersville or Lake Gunnersville, happily swimming along on a Sunday afternoon, minding its own business when it is attracted to something shiny in the water. And there's something inside that fish that resonates with that shiny object. And because that fish lives for himself, because that fish has desires that serve its agenda and its agenda only, that fish will be strangely, powerfully compelled, attracted to that thing in the water. And then it bites, and there's a hook. And into the frying pan goes that fish. One commentator has described, I think with familiar terms, how all this takes place. You will you will recognize this. If you don't, you're just lying. You'll recognize this. He writes, a man may allow his thoughts to follow certain tracks. He may allow his steps to take him into certain places and in certain company. He will then encourage his eyes to linger on certain forbidden things and soon enough he will spend his life fomenting his desire, his mind, his heart, his eyes, and his feet and lips will all be employed to nourish his desires. And this is every man and every woman's life history. This is what we do. This is who we are. There is something within us profoundly broken and here James says, it is our desires. And being profoundly broken means they are profoundly at odds with God, but they are powerfully seductive. These corrupted lusts respond to the world around us. There are many enticements and allurements in this world, and there's something broken within us that wants that, that responds to that. Our own desires lead us into rebellion. Our own desires lead us into temptation. Even innocent things. Even things that are good in and of themselves. How many times, how many times have you glanced at an elegant meal, a full meal, only to find yourself swallowed by a gluttonous passion? How many times have you been driving up and down the road maybe and you see a lovely home, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe in someone else's neighborhood, and there's an unholy craving in your heart for more? Or bigger. Or how about this one? Someone gets a raise at work. And there's an unholy craving for you 
to destroy him, to bring him down. There's jealousy, there's envy, there's a host of emotions that began to explode in you. Why is that? It is because we are broken. We are broken. And our desires are out from under the reign of our Creator. And so the cause is our heart. But James isn't through with us. Look at verse 15. The source of our trouble is our heart. That's just the way it is. And until we recognize that, there is no chance for healing or salvation. It's me. Oh, Lord, it's me standing in the need of prayer. It is me, oh, Lord, who needs salvation. But James says, not only do we find the source of our temptations here, but our desires, corrupted as they are, lead us on a path downward. Look at the words in verse 15 and just follow this inexorable trajectory down. Desire, sin, death. That's what temptation does. This is where our desires lead us. And James uses the terminology of conception and birth here. And the reason he does that is because, because we know that every conception must come to a point of termination somehow. Isn't that true? When all works well and conception occurs, that little baby, that human being made in the image of God begins to grow safely inside its mother's womb. And then, and then nine months later, that, that baby is born and new life, new life is welcomed into the world and that's the joyful conclusion. And James has that in mind. And he says that desire is pregnant with sin. Notice his language, that desire conceives and it gives birth to sin. Our desires are always going somewhere. Our desires are always looking for completion, for consummation. They are always leading somewhere. And James says, when, when, when I give in to my desires that are corrupted, that, that are at odds with God, I am going to inevitably sin against the Lord. I will not, I will not be satisfied in that way until I have, I have done what my desires are leading me to do. Because desire is pregnant with sin. And that's just the way it is. But there's even more. Sin, he says, will grow. Sin itself will come to a point of maturity. That's an amazing statement. Our desires give birth to sin, and then sin begins to develop like the baby in the womb, but it's, it's not good. This is not a healthy, holy thing. This is an unholy thing, uh, to be sure. And where does sin take us? Where does sin go? 
death. It leads to death. Now, we need to remember what we said at the very beginning. This is a message for the church. And so this applies to you and to me as members of the body of Christ. Now, we know that those who are outside of Christ, who've never tasted and seen the Lord as good, who've never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, if they die in that state of rebellion, will know eternal death under the wrath of God. We know that. That's the explicit teaching of the Word of God. That is not in view here. We have been delivered from that death. That death will never touch us. No, he's talking about something else. What is death? Death, to find a word that might be most applicable here, the word disintegration comes into mind. Change, but not change for the better. A disintegrating kind of change. And sin has that effect, even in the lives of followers of Jesus. Sin, leading to death, would be the exact antithesis of what James talked about earlier in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. I mean, the person who resists, the person who is steadfast, who wants to serve the Lord, there's a blessing. But those who give in to their desires... There is death, which is the opposite of the blessed life the Lord wants us to know. And so things break down in the life of a believer when desire rules. Because sin leads to death. Things change for the worse. Perhaps the most explicit illustration of this unchangeable truth is found in the life of King David. David observes Bathsheba bathing. Lust swells in the heart of the king. Bathsheba didn't cause that. His circumstances didn't cause that. They had a part to play, but what caused that was the wicked desires in the heart of the king. And lust swells, and he acts on his cravings. And he grievously sins against the Lord. And then I would submit to you, death came to King David. What happened to him? His world fell apart, both internally and externally. There was grief and anguish and pain on the inside. Disruption, conflict, hostility on the outside. He would say these things. He would write these words. I am weary with my groaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. He would talk about how God has broken his bones. How there was such pain inside. In his sin, he knew death. Now, he was redeemed as a child of God. But in that moment of rebellion against the Lord, he knew a change, the disintegrating power of sin. And it is not pretty. It is not pleasant. It is horrific. That's what sin does. And there are consequences. And in the life of David, there were terrible consequences. He lost his kingdom. He lost that child. He lost his family. He he lost it all. And he went to heaven. He was the man after God's own heart. But he realized, he knew by experience that sin produces death. 
So we can never know joy and life as God has for us and peace when we follow our corrupted desires. And so the problem is me. The problem is me. Healing starts when I stop blaming everybody else. When I look in the mirror and I say, Lord, forgive me for my desires have been serving my kingdom, not yours. Would you forgive me? Would you, as David prayed, restore to me the joy of your salvation? Would you lasso, as it were, lasso my recalcitrant desires that are always seeking their autonomy? Would you, would you control them with the chains of your love? Would you, would you let me serve your kingdom? Would you let Christ be my king and me his slave? And then change comes for the better. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? That's such an ominous message. It's almost depressing. Let's look over the horizon. Look at verse 17. And this is where we will begin next Lord's Day. We're going to take a peek over the horizon and see where this discussion ends, this discussion that is so, so personal, so hard to hear. What is the next thing James says? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from, and notice the words, the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Do you see where James takes us in our hopelessness? Uh, humanly speaking, there's no way out of this. Humanly speaking, there is no hope for change. There is no hope that our marriages will be better, that we'll be stronger against temptation, or that churches will be more unified, or that you will have any kind of victory over some besetting sin. There is absolutely no hope to be found on earth. And so what does James do? He says, look to the heavens. Every good gift, every perfect gift, comes down from above, from your father. You have a father. You are not alone. Do you remember how your parents taught you to pray when you were just a little thing? God is great and God is good. And this is what James is saying. For all struggling saints who would admit their weakness who would admit that they've lost control of their desires. And they are sinning against the Lord. Maybe, maybe now you're knowing the smell of death over some area of your life because you are not serving the Lord. There is hope, not on earth, but hope in heaven. Look to your Father, he says. Your Father who is good and who is great. And turn to Him. Submit to Him. 
Repent. Be filled with his spirit. Be filled with his power. And the smell of death will go away. And your desires slowly and surely will begin to serve Christ and his agenda. And they will reflect his glory and his holiness. And one day when Christ comes, the battle will be over. Sanctification will be complete. Our desires perfectly purified. Never to battle with him again for eternity. Trust your Father. Look to your Father. Shall we prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord? Would you?